give you a little background. Last week, we finished up John chapter 1. And the very last interaction that we saw in John chapter 1 was Jesus speaking with Nathanael. Nathanael, as Nathanael came to Jesus, Jesus said to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no deceit or is no guile. And as you, you remember, we talked about that, that, that expression of Israel and yet the contrast of the person who was first named Israel, God changed his name to Israel from Jacob. Jacob the heel catcher. Jacob the deceiver. Jacob the one who by guile and deceit tried to weasel his brother out of both the birthright and the blessing. He disguised himself as if he was his brother lying to his dad. He made himself smell like his brother. He presented food to his dad like he was his brother. He even said that he was his brother and in that through deceit tried to obtain a blessing. And in the middle of the, all of the, 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 the hazard that that deception caused upon his life, that God met him there on that mountain as he made a rock for his pillow. And, uh, and there he saw that vision of Jacob's ladder. A ladder extending to heaven, angels ascending and descending upon him. We know in another occasion that he wrestled with God. And God gave him a limp and changed his name. From Jacob the deceiver, God transformed him to Israel, which means governed by God. And so when Nathaniel comes to Jesus and he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no deceit, or in whom is like an Israelite in whom is no Jacob, whatever Jesus, when he said that, it had such a deep effect upon Nathaniel that he was like, like, you're speaking directly to me. How do you know me? Like, you're talking to me with insight about me. How do you have this insight? And to that, Jesus replies, well, I saw you under the fig tree. And that again had, a, had like a, an impact upon Nathaniel so much so that it stirred him deep in this reply of faith between an Israelite in whom is no guile, and I saw you under the fig tree. That's all it took for him to reply, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now remember, later on, all the way up in the north of Israel in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus was meeting with the disciples, and he said, who do men say that I am? And you know, some say Elijah, some say Moses, or one of the prophets. And then he said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter blurts out, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Like, good job, Peter. Like, that is awesome. It took all of that time for Peter to be like, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Nathaniel, it's like, an Israelite in whom is no guile. I saw you under a fig tree. You're the Messiah. You are the Son of God. It's amazing. Now, look, there's more to it than just the surface. It, at the beginning of the service, I went out because I couldn't find my microphone, and it was in the van. So I went out to the, the courtyard, and I went to go get the, the microphone out of the van, 
and I saw, I saw a guy skateboarding. For me to say, I saw him skateboarding, that, that means that's nothing. It's obvious. That's where he was. If I was to say, I saw you sitting in church, well, yeah, that's where you were sitting. But whatever was happening in these statements, there is a level behind the surface that was addressing Nathaniel in a way where it was like, it was answering some deep things in his heart. And that was what caused this great profession from him. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And from that, Jesus made him a promise. And I believe that that same promise, we get to be benefit, beneficiaries of. And that promise was, you believe because I said I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And now here as we come to chapter 2, we're about to see one of those greater things. Now I want you to know that John will be showing us many greater things throughout his gospel. In fact, he calls them specifically signs. These seven signs at the first half of the Gospel of John, they begin here in John chapter 2, and they go all the way up to John chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Like, through these signs, the people began to believe in him, and the Jews began to plot to kill him. As it says in John 11, verse 47 and 48, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Oh no, people are going to believe in Jesus and we're going to lose our authority. So the people were believing, the Jews were plotting to kill him, all because of these miraculous demonstrations of power. The first half of John's Gospel is written all with the intent to prove what the prologue of John chapter 1 has already declared to us. From the very get-go, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. In Him was life. And that life is the light of men. And the light is shining in the darkness. And the darkness doesn't comprehend it. From there, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came from, by Jesus Christ. And of His fullness we've received and grace, from, grace upon grace. He says, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God in the bosom of the Father has declared Him. And as we see now in John chapter 2 and all the way through it, we see these declarations that Jesus Christ is none other than like the Son of God. Here He is, God in human flesh, declaring His glory. And that's these signs are pointing us to believe. John chapter 21, John tells us the reason he wrote is that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And He is declaring it through this miraculous manifestations of power. Greater things. Greater things that point us to who Jesus truly is. So, right here, before we get to the first two verses of John chapter 2, 
I want to let you know that it tells us all the big details. It tells us the day, the place, uh, what the occasion was. Those are pretty important, right? What's the day? Well, what's the occasion? The occasion is a wedding. And once you hear there's going to be a wedding, like I'm sure you're going to ask Garrett, uh, what, what's the day? What day are you getting married? Do you have a venue? All the questions, right? The questions that they ask women, right? Like, like when Hannah and I were getting married, there were ladies asking Hannah the week we were getting married, do you have the dress? <laughs> uh, you'd be in a bad situation, right, if you didn't have the dress on, on the week of the wedding. But, you know, the key details are, like, what? A wedding. When? Well, three days after. And then where? Cana of Galilee. We have the mention of the guests. And all of that sets the scene. And what is the scene? The scene is the scene of the first miracle recorded of Jesus. So let's look at John 2, verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So after Jesus tells Nathanael that he was going to see greater things than these, the next place we see them is Cana of Galilee. Now Cana was significant to Nathanael. He was from there. John 21, verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others of his disciples were together. So this just wasn't just community. This was his community. This wasn't just people. This was his people. And the towns and the villages in those days were so much smaller than what we imagine now. Now, you kind of feel it living here in Maui, right? The the total population of those that live here annually is something around 200,000. I think 2 million visit annually, but there's about 200,000 that live here. And the longer you live here, the smaller Maui feels. It's not uncommon for me to go out somewhere, whether it's the store or whether it's to the bank, um, and run into somebody that I know from somewhere. Uh, on the island. And like I said, the longer you live here, the smaller it gets. Like people that have been here a long time, like when, like Uncle Greg Carvalho, I go out with him and he goes up and he's like, what's your name? And then the guy says the name. And then he's like, what, what's your last name? Says the last name. Then the next question, who's your father? And then from that, Greg will go on to tell this guy his life story. Because that's just the way the island gets. You start to know everybody. And that's with a population of 200,000. Like villages like Capernaum, which was a, like a buzzing fishing town. When you go to the excavation of Capernaum today, it's about the size of two football fields. It's not that big. That was the village. You know, sure, there's probably some people on the outskirts, but the village itself was pretty small. These weren't massive towns. Everybody knew everybody. And so for this, with Nathaniel, this was a very special occasion. This was his people. And marriage in those days was so important. It was so important because to them, it was the way God intended it to be. The bedrock of healthy society. The bedrock of healthy community. If I have kids... 
I'm not only worried that my kids are going to grow up healthy, I'm also worried that they're going to grow up into what? What kind of world are my kids going to grow up into? You know, who are my kids going to have available to them to marry? Like, I want my kids to know the Lord. I want my kids to serve the Lord. I want my kids to be pure, to have a wholesome worldview, to not live a life of selfish indulgence and self-destruction. And God provides the foundation. The Bible says to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so I'm, we're trying to do that. And I'm only praying that there's some other family out there that's raising their kids in a similar way that will provide a, like a godly foundation for little husbands and wives for my kids one day. So that I can have grandbabies that are being brought up not in like a crazy town, and not like, you know, not being brought up to be, you know, self-destructive and self-indulgent. I want, I want a healthy society. And so, like, marriage in that day was so important. And to make sure that it was like pure marriage. That people were doing things right. They were honoring God. It was so important. And so anytime there was a marriage, everybody was involved. Because it's like, this is the next generation. This is the health of, and strength of our society. We're, we're excited about this. And they'd all be interested. There's some commentators that would even suggest that this may have been Nathaniel's wedding. I don't know. Uh, that, might, that seems like a stretch to me. There's a lot of stretches that people like to make about this passage. Uh, a lot of like allegorizing and, and like, you know, things. But interesting stuff, maybe. But I don't know. Nonetheless... This was his people. Community is so important. Community is so precious. And one of the, one of the primary ways that we interact with community is through our families. I, there's people that I know that I wouldn't know unless my kids became friends with their kids. Family, we get some interesting interactions. We begin to connect. Family is the basic building block of society. And that starts, like I said, with marriage. Marriage was huge for them. And let me tell you, it would be so good for us if we had a higher view of marriage in our society as well. I'll tell you right now. Marriage is under attack in our society. It's been undermined. In some ways, it's viewed as not necessary. Like, why marry when you can just play house? Why marry when, I mean, people aren't waiting for intimacy until marriage anymore, so there's no true commitment. Like, God has intended intimacy to be within the confines of marriage for a purpose. God has blessing in this whole thing. Um, so people are either, why bother getting married? Or they're also on the other side. Why bother staying married? Like as if it's not something worth fighting for. But marriage is the God-given foundation of family. It's that very institution where God said that a man shall leave his father and a mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And that oneness is signified in this physical illustration of 
a contribution of 23 chromosomes from a father and 23 chromosomes from a mother that come together to be one person that can never be separated. That will always be the combination of father and mother. Like, you are one part your mom and one part your dad. Or 23 parts your mom, 23 parts, you know, like, you know what I'm saying. And you will never be like, if you're like, I take that back. You can never be separated. That's who you are. And that 23 chromosome, 23 chromosome contribution, and in that, the, the living soul that, 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 that happens there in that union, where that living soul, God's intended for it to be nurtured and raised, is in the lifeline, lifetime commitment between father and mother. That as long as, I, I point to the keyboard, because that's where Hannah normally stands. Hannah's my wife, in case you don't know. But my, my wife and I, for life, I'm talking to no one. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, for, <laughs> through our lifetime, we are one. You know what I mean? And that is where, like, our children will be raised. And it's such a blessing. That foundation. The institution where our children receive the nurture and the discipline. They learn to become respectable members of society. They learn how to commit. They learn how to keep their word. They learn how to stick it out in the hard times. They see when mommy and daddy are like, they're happy and everything's going good. They see when mommy and daddy are stressed. And then when mommy and daddy fight. And then when mommy and daddy humble themselves and get over their differences and learn how to move forward as like decent people who are looking for unity in life. They learn that. They learn that like exploding and blowing off the handle and then just going off and just like never having any more connection, that that's not the appropriate way, that there's a better way. But these days, the entire family structure is being broken down. That the entire family structure is being eroded. Where even to like the foundations of our society, some, like I mentioned, like, you know, we, we, we pray for schools, we pray for local governments. But there's things that are happening now in schools that are actually encouraging children against the institution of their parents. Like, you don't need your parents, you need us. It's the school that we will raise your kids for you. But nobody is better qualified to have the input into your child than you. Because that child is part you. Like God has given you the children that he's given you. Marriage. When, when Hannah and I were about to get married and I went and talked to my pastor about it, like I wanted, I wanted his counsel. And he asked me, he said, Sean, what is marriage? And I was getting ready to get all complicated. And he's like, hey, marriage is when God takes two and he makes them one. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Then he goes on to say it's a great mystery, but he speaks concerning Christ and the church. So there's something about marriage that even from the very get-go, when God established the institution in the Garden of Eden, before they even knew about it, that God was pointing forward to the glorious relationship of Christ and His church. 
marriage points forward to that great day when the call goes out in Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and be glad and give honor to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. The Bible tells us that marriage is honorable above all. That it's an institution designed by God in His kindness. And in His kindness, God Himself speaks concerning just even the singleness of man in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable or comparable to him. And God being the gracious provider that he is, he provided a wife for Adam. And I look around, God's provided spouses for so many of you. And I want to encourage you to see God's sovereignty even in like the spouse that God has provided for you. That is a spouse that is comparable to you, a, a help that's meet. Sometimes, you know, sometimes marriage is hard. Sometimes you might be thinking, oh man, like, this woman that you've given me, God, I'm miserable. My friend used to always joke about the three rings of marriage, that there's the engagement ring, and the wedding ring, and then the suffering. And... Um, but I'll tell you, that's not the way that the Bible describes that marriage has to be. I don't know, did anybody wake up early yesterday and see the sunrise? Oh my goodness. I woke up early and I started walking out of my bedroom and I, my eyes were still kind of blurry. And I look out the one window and I see my neighbor's house across the street and it was red. And I was worried, like, is there a fire? And then I'm like, wait, no. That's the sunrise reflecting off the house. So I looked out the back window where I could see the sunrise and it was just explosive. I mentioned it in first service, and after the service, three different guys pull out pictures of the sunrise on their phone. They're like, look at this. It was amazing. The Bible describes the sunrise in the Psalms as a bridegroom coming forth from his bridal chamber, just face glowing. Like that, like that sunrise did not present doom and gloom for my morning. That sunrise was like, this is going to be a beautiful day. There's joy that, that God has available in marriage. It's possible. Like sometimes we get all like caught up in our little crazy town that we forget to open the windows and let the light of His heavenly sunrise in. You get so caught up in all of your funk that you forget to have the freshness of Christ. But when we follow God's Word, He has guidelines for us that can bring tremendous joy into the middle of what seems to even be, at times, an impossible circumstance. Marriage is way more than just sentiment. It's more than feeling. It's got to be based on one thing, that this is the one who God has called me to lay my life down for. And that's what Christ has taught us. In Ephesians 5, 25-31, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one has ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church, 
For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But look at this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. When did Christ give himself for his church? Was it when she's like, oh, you're so handsome. Oh, I just love the way that you smell. No. When did Christ give himself for his church? It was when she was saying, I don't want you. I want another man. I want Barabbas. Give me Barabbas. In fact, it was when she was wanting him killed. I don't know if your wife has ever wanted you killed. She might have wished it, but like, you know what I mean? That's like, that's when Christ gave himself for his church. It was when she was hurling insults at him, spitting at him, mocking him. And what did he do? Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And he gave his life for his bride. That's what Jesus has taught us. This is the one that God has called me to lay my life down for. Not only did God invent marriage, but he blessed it. He blessed it with his presence. <laughs> like he didn't have to go to a wedding. He could have gotten the wedding invitation and been like, don't you know who I am? I'm the son of God. I don't have no time for no wedding. But no, Jesus was no recluse. He wasn't a hermit. He loved people. He gladly went where they were. He went to meals. He went to parties. So much so that he got a reputation where they called him a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. Here we find him at a wedding. He's rejoicing with them. But here we also, we see Mary. Interesting little side point. Her name is never mentioned in the Gospel of John. She is just called the mother of Jesus. And she shows up twice. She shows up here at this wedding in Cana of Galilee. And then she shows up again at the cross. And I think it's significant because these two stories, they go together. The story of the wedding in Cana of Galilee and the story of the cross. They go together and we'll see that evidenced by an interesting statement that Jesus says to Mary in a conversation that they have here. Look with me in verses 3 and 4. It says, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. When the, the wine ran out. When the wine ran out. The way it's worded here in the Greek, it makes it sound like it was commonplace. Like there's no surprise at all that the wine ran out. It's almost like that to John, he expects it. And I want to tell you that when it comes to marriage, or even life for that matter, there will be times when the wine runs out. That you will run into crises in life. It's not, it, like there's no surprise. You will run into crises. And how many times? They always come in unexpected or like the most inopportune times. You know, you, you go out and all of a sudden you're like, try to start your car. You're like, that's either my battery or it's my alternator. 
And I don't know, like, my, I've had alternators die on me a lot lately. I'm almost used to it now. Oh, it's the alternator again. What's going on with alternator? You know, like, it's just like you, but it's never at a good time. I don't know if you, there's ever a good time for your alternator to die. But, like, you know. But, like, it's just a difficulty. It's part of life. There's going to be these things that are going to come up. It shouldn't be like a shock. And though it might start big and extravagant, here's this wedding, big and extravagant. You got the wine, and it might be flowing, but guess what? Even still, it's going to run out. Not to be a shock. It's going to run out. Whatever it is. Whatever it is that you are all about. It's going to run out. No surprise there. But whatever the crisis is, like crises shouldn't be a surprise. But whatever the crises are, Jesus cares. And whatever the crisis is, Jesus is sufficient. And whatever the crisis is, it's always best to take it to Him rather than just to try to cover it up or figure out your own way. Sometimes when our plans fall apart or our resources run out or, you know, in the midst of those times, if we look to the world, their faces might be faces of disappointment. They might look down on you with shame. Oh, you ran out. Hmm. But when we look to the face of Christ, He's not frowning. He's not frowning. Like, when the bride looks into the face of Christ, she sees overwhelming love. When this bride and this groom, they were, in a, they were at a moment where they could have been facing the glances and whispers of their guests for not having enough. But Jesus' heart was moved for them. And He moved to action. And His love, His love covers a multitude of sins. How many falling short, and yet the love of God, love covers a multitude of sins. When Mary brought this issue to Jesus, they have no wine. It's worded as if she's like trying to dig into Him. Do something. How did she know that he could do something? Well, Matthew and Luke tells us the story of his birth, and Mary pondered all these sayings in her heart. She knew about his coming, where he came from. Certainly she's heard about his baptism. So now it's like, okay, like the stuff that I learned when you were born is now tying in with the stuff that I'm hearing about what just happened there when you got baptized. So do something. (laughs) But his reply to her, he replies in a strange way. What does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In the Gospel of John, that statement, my hour, it means a lot. Let me show you. John 7, verse 30. Therefore they sought to take Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. 
They were going to try to kill him, but they could not do it because his hour had not yet come. It tells us in John 8.20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. They couldn't harm him. They couldn't kill him. They couldn't hurt him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. In John 12, 23, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come, that the Son of Man should be glorified. John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Like, no one could harm him before it was time. But he had a very specific time. A very specific hour. A time frame in which he had come into the world. The very reason he came into the world was for what? To suffer and to die for the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And finally in John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. And there at that feast, where he lays aside his garments, he clothes himself with a towel. He washes his disciples' feet. And then at that meal that's at that supper, he eventually takes a cup of wine. And he says, this is the new cup of the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you for the remission of sins. This drink in remembrance of me. That that very meal where he takes, a, he takes wine, the very meal where he says, my hour has come, and now here, drink this. My blood for the remission of sins. There's a parallel here. Here at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, my hour has not yet come. And there at that last supper, from a wedding in Cana of Galilee where they have no wine, and we have his first miracle, to the Last Supper where he brings out the wine and he says, this is my blood shed for you. Every story in John points to the cross. Every story. You could say that the cross is the crux of the message of every story in the Gospel of John. From what we saw in John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God sacrificed for us. It's pointing to the cross. To John 2.19, the next story that we'll see next week of Jesus cleansing the temple. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And here as well, this pointing to the cross. The hour had not yet come, but it was time for Him to manifest His glory. And so in verse 5, His mother said to the servants, Whatever He says to you, do it. Now first of all, there's more to this story. And I, I, like, it's a mystery. He just says, what does that have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. And then she just goes, whatever He says, do it. <laughs> like, what happened there? What happened in the exchange? But when I read this, 
this is like, you don't get a lot of words from Mary recorded in the Bible. But here you get some words from her. She said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And I can't help but think of that Beatles song here. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary speaks to me, speaking words of wisdom. Uh, I would say if there were ever words of wisdom, it's right here. Whatever the lack, whatever the crisis, whatever the longing, whatever is missing or lost, whatever He says to you, do it. Do it. Amen. I remember my aunt a bunch of years ago now. It was when Hannah and I first got married. So um, I'm like 17, 18 years ago now. Um, and like her marriage was struggling. Like they were just in lots of hardship. Uh, my uncle had hurt his back, and so he was out of work, and all the tension that that puts in, and the strain that that puts on the marriage. I remember my cousin, she was really small at the time, and she would say things so cruelly. She'd just be like, Mommy, if you just want to divorce my dad, I understand. And it would just break our hearts to hear that from, like, such a little one. But I remember my aunt. At the time, she was... She was almost, she was in her 40s at the time, and she was racing professional jet skis at, like, the world championships in Lake Havasu. Racing against, like, 18, 19-year-old girls. Being in your 40s and race against these young kids, like, you got to do a lot of working out. So she would, she was exercising relentlessly. She would be in such great shape. But I remember she told me the testimony that that when things were just at such a crisis, that she said, you know, I know what it is to give my all to something in order to succeed. I've given my all to being a mechanic. She used to be a brake mechanic. And then she used to race motorcycles. And she used to race jet skis. Like, my, my aunt is a tough woman. Like, I know what it is to give my all in order to succeed. But I've never actually given my all to obeying Jesus. And so she just made a commitment with the Lord, like, Lord, whatever you say in your word, even if I don't fully understand it, like, I'm going to do it. And from that, she started obeying God. And that led her to a place where she started having tremendous joy in her life. And the joy that she had in her life was actually contagious. And it began to impact her husband. And it lifted them out of this funk that they were in and to a point to where they got to like a super happy place in their marriage. Like really blessed. And it doesn't mean that they're like flawless. Like they still argue like anybody. They might argue a little louder than anybody because they have that Irish background. And yeah, like my, and my aunt, she just talks loud. But, you know, but yet there's part of that, even the like the, the squabbling back and forth that like, Keeps them fresh and alive. There's something special about even that. They, they love each other in their little bantering and all that. My granny and granddad are the same way. You know, like they're always cracking jokes about each other. And it's like they love it. They love each other. 
and they also they they make they crack a lot of jokes about each other too. But um, you know, but God healed their marriage. The crisis was there, and the answer of the crisis was whatever He says, do it. You know what the core of that that message that Mary gives to the servants? The very root of it is two things. And it's the two, it's just the very root that is so practical for you as well. The root of whatever he says to you, do it, is this trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. From there, let's look at verses 6 through 10. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. So here's the layout. The lack, the crisis, they have ran out of wine. What's the risk? The glares, the glances, the shame from their community. And yet Mary gets involved, and now Jesus is involved. And what's there? Six water pots. Six water pots that, as it says specifically, were part of their religious purification ceremonies. They used them to try to be religiously purified. And Jesus commands them to take these ceremonial pots that were used for purification, take those pots and to fill those pots with water. Fill them to the brim, it says. Now it says here that the pots were somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons each. So let's just say, for the sake of average, that we split the difference between 20 and 30. Let's say they're 25 gallons each. Six pots at 25 gallons each is 150 gallons. Now, I don't know if you ever had a potluck and you asked, hey, can you bring some water? No one brings 150 gallons to your potluck. You're like, what do you think? We're dromedary camels? Like, that's a lot of water. The fact that they're filled to the brim is it's significant. Everyone could see that it was water. When the water pot got filled to the brim, you could see still that it was water. It's not like he had put some, like, you know, grape tang or whatever in there, and then when they filled it up with water, oh, look at that, whoa, like, where did that come from? They saw it was water. It was filled to the brim. It was still water. Water pots that they had looked to to be purified. But Jesus has these waiters take this water 
draw it out, and give it to the master of the feast. And they do it. Whatever he says to you, do. Trust and obey, right? And the master of the feast, his response is to the bridegroom. The one who would have gotten the the rejection, the shame, the one who would have gotten like all of the insult from the community, the master of the feast gets the bridegroom and says, you kept the good wine until now. Everybody else, they, they bring out the good wine until everybody's so drunk they can't taste if it's good or bad. And then they bring out the bad wine and everybody's like, it's, it's fine. But you save the good stuff till now. And we don't know when the water became wine. We don't know if it transformed in the cup or if it transformed in the pot or if it transformed in the drawing it out. We don't know how it happened. And we don't have to know how it happened. But we, knew, we know who made it happen. And that's the significance of every miracle ever. We don't need to get caught up in the hows. We don't need to get caught up in the whens. But we just need to stay trusting in the who. Trusting in the Lord Jesus because He is the one that is the miracle maker. He's the one that can bring this stuff to pass. He's the one that is still showing forth His glory. And so with that, Jesus takes those old pots. And from those old pots, He took something so common, just water, filled to the brim with something so common. And from that, He brought forth that which was for rejoicing and cheer. He took a religious system that could in no way take away your sin. Pots that were meant for purifying that couldn't do anything And yet then he took a whole system at the Last Supper. He took the entire Passover of the Last Supper and he set all of that aside and he says, this is my blood. It's shed for you, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Instead of that whole religious system that could never take away sin, instead of that, the day his hour had come, he took the cup and said, this is my blood. Okay, so let's do a little math. 128 ounces per gallon. 150 gallons at 128 ounces each. That's 19,200 ounces. I did some research. I don't know anything about wine. The average wine bottle is 25.4 ounces. And it has something to do with like whether it's white wine or red wine and the shape of glass and whatever. It's so that there's even pores. I I don't get it, but that's what I learned. 25.4 ounces is the average um, size wine wine bottle. So if you were to say that Jesus showed up with wine bottles, that would be approximately 755 bottles of wine. Like, I've been to weddings that have had open bars. But they never have 755 bottles of wine. I asked Amanda at first service, that's all she does is she does wedding stuff. She does wedding makeup, and she's like, she knows everything about weddings. I asked her, have you ever seen a wedding that had 750 bottles of wine? She's like, not yet. (laughs) And that's big old Maui people spending like bajillions of dollars to get married here. 
This is little old Cana of Galilee, like a town the size of two football fields. Like, talk about, like, overboard in provision. Like, nobody needs 750 bottles of wine. Like, even if you had a big wedding, I'd be like, you really think you need 750 bottles of wine? I think that's a little bit overkill. But let me just tell you that God cares about his people. God cares about marriage. And God loves to provide. And when God works, he works exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or even imagine. Whatever the crisis is, he's more than enough. But the true crisis of the soul is this. There's no amount of water pots that can purify your soul. There's no water or soap that can ever cleanse your heart. No vitamin shop is selling detox to get rid of the sin that's inside of you. There's no religious order. There's no ceremony that will ever do the trick. The true crisis of the soul is sin. And sin separates us from God. The Bible tells us that all have sinned. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the penalty of your sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Not just the separation of your soul from your body, but the second death, the eternal separation of your soul from that fellowship, the the welcoming presence of God. For all eternity. And the hard truth, sinners, of which we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, sinners, sinners, you can't save yourself. Trying hard can't save you. Good works can't save you. There's only one that can save sinners from their sin, and that is Jesus. Only Jesus Christ saves sinners. It tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says that we are saved by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It tells us in Titus 3.5 that it's not of works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy that He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's why He died. His hour, His hour was to pay the penalty for our sin. And he conquered sin. And he conquered death. And he rose from the grave. And now he ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. He is exalted. Jesus is Savior. And Jesus is Lord. And the crisis of the soul, the crisis of the soul finds its answer in Jesus. But like Mary said, whatever he tells you, do it. You know the first gospel message that Jesus preached was? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what repent means? It doesn't mean like Jesus comes to you and says, Oh, I love you. You're so good. Just come and be with me. Just the way you are. Don't change a thing. He says, repent. You know what repent means? Change. He looks at you and he says, I love you, but change. 
Like, knock it off and come be with me. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, you might be like, I don't know how. I don't know how I'm going to stop my fornication. Sex outside of marriage. I don't know how I'm going to stop that. I don't know how I'm going to stop my pharmacia, my sorcery, my drug use. So the Bible calls drug use. Recreational drug use is witchcraft, according to the Bible. I don't know how I can stop that. I am stuck in it. My alcoholism. You're like, you just turned water into wine. Yeah, you know what? The Bible doesn't say that alcohol is a sin, but it does say drunkenness is a sin. It doesn't say drinking for celebration is bad. It says drinking to escape reality. That's your problem. You say, I don't know how I'm going to break free from this. I don't know how I'm going to break free from this lifestyle of deceit that I've built up. It doesn't matter if you don't know how. Whatever he says to you, do it. Trust and obey. And what he says is change. Leave your life of sin. Only Jesus can save your soul. Jesus is the Savior and he is the Lord. And he's more than enough. Water into wine? Yeah, not just a little bit. Not just like in the natural way where like it rains, gets into the dirt, gets into a grape plant. Water, 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 bloop. Grapes, juice, squish, ferment, wine. Not like that. Water pots. 755 bottles of wine. That is exceedingly and abundantly. And finally, just two verses, and then we're going to wrap it right up. 11 and 12. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. This was the beginning of his miracles. There at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And today is Communion Sunday. We're not going to end with a closing song. We're going to end in communion. Where we celebrate Jesus. The true answer to the crisis of the soul. Not wine from water pots at a wedding in Cana. But wine that He declared is blood. Pointing to what He would do for you on the cross. That could truly cleanse your soul. And save you from the wrath to come. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.